Welcome to the Truth Be Known podcast, bringing you the objective truth boldly, candidly, and without apology. Welcome to this week's episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Truth Be Known podcast. I'm Nathaniel Jolly. And I am Eki Tepsapornchai. Well, brother, it's good to be back. We took a break last week for uh, the Shepherds Conference, and yeah, uh, which conference. was a really good conference. Yeah, it was it was epic. And uh, I, I I don't know if you were there for that final session and that final song. That that was that was just a slice of heaven. Um, that song, singing, he is is he worthy? And it's been circulating around. Uh, but uh, what what a way to end that conference and and to to be with four thousand men who are just singing their hearts out uh, in praise to the to the lion of the tribe of Judah and uh, how he is worthy to to open up that scroll and and uh, bring about the the end times was just marvelous yeah sadly I missed it uh I was trying to get back to Alaska on time for Sunday morning and um so I I missed MacArthur's talk uh, but I did listen to it at like 3 a.m in the airport so <laughs> yeah um, good but not the same thing well Anyway, we've got a really good uh, podcast episode today, and I, I think that, you know, we just, as time goes on, the same issues come up in the church, the same battles have to get fought again and again, um, and today we won't talk about the inspiration of, of Scripture, the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, and I think there's a lot of things that we have seen over the last few years. We often talk about the attacks on the sufficiency of Scripture yeah. But, you know, I've been thinking about this for the, the last couple of weeks and really what you believe about the inspiration of Scripture affects how you view the sufficiency of Scripture. Yes. And, and so really, I think the battle that we're seeing is a not a new <laughs> battle, but a renewed battle with quite a quite a bit of vigor over the inspiration of, of Scripture. And I don't see a lot of talk about that. Because if you view the Bible as not fully inspired by God, then it makes perfect sense. You would do things like pick the verses you like, discard the verses you don't like. Just decide right. that verse isn't God. Um, well, Paul said this was just his opinion, so clearly mm -hmm. this isn't God. Well, it, if you take verses like that where Paul says, I but not the Lord, and you don't understand inspiration— then you could very easily fall in the trap of, okay, well, we can just disregard anything like that. And if that can be disregarded in Scripture, then maybe there are other things that we can disregard in Scripture. Um, and, and we're seeing a lot of that. So I think this is an important uh, conversation. W when's the last time you had a conversation about the inspiration of Scripture just in your day-to-day -day ministry? I don't think it comes up as much as sufficiency these days. No, yeah, you're you're right, and and indeed, sufficiency is a huge battle right now. I, you know, especially as I talk about often talk about biblical counseling, and the attacks from the world, especially um, psychology and 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 other man centered uh, wisdom and ideologies. Um, but inerrancy is not a completely separate topic from sufficiency. So I think you bring up a good point there, and we also have to understand that people define inerrancy in different ways. So someone can say they believe the Bible is inerrant, but they don't really believe the Bible is inerrant. So you have to get down to what do they mean by that? And one of my seminary professors is a guy by the name of uh, Dr. David Farnell was, was very good about pointing that out about how very many people who call themselves inerrantists 
are not truly inerrantists. So then the question is, what do we mean when we say that these scriptures are inspired? Yeah. And and you could even break those things down further. You can talk about the, you can talk about the inerrancy of scripture and you can talk about the inspiration of scripture. And so like maybe for this segment, let's just kind of talk about inspiration. There are several views of inspiration out there. Um, and again, since it's not thought about as much these days, because you're right, we do have to steadily fight the sufficiency of scripture. Uh, but again, if we back up a step, we, we come to inspiration. So before we get to the biblical view of inspiration, m- maybe let's just kind of talk about some of the other doctrinal views out there. So one of the theories of inspiration that we have is the dictation theory. And I don't, I you know, I don't know that a lot of people believe in the dictation theory, but it is, uh, it, it is a theory out there. It's well known in the academic circles, and it's just what it sounds like, right? The dictation theory is essentially that God dictated verbatim everything that He wanted written in Scripture, and the authors of the Bible just very simply wrote down what they heard. Um, clearly, if you read the Bible, that one's pretty easy to dismiss. Although there are some places, right, where that has been true, the yeah. Ten Commandments, for instance, right. Um, right. is one of those one of those places. Yeah, so I, I think that's more, in my experience, that's more of a straw man from people who are opposed to, you know, the inerrancy of Scripture, the full inspiration of Scripture, is that they say our view is essentially that men are essentially robots or automatons, where we're just receiving yeah. word by word everything that that's being stated. And that's not true. There are areas where God clearly dictates uh, what to write. And you gave the example of the Ten Commandments, these seven letters to the seven uh, churches in, in Revelation. Yep, would be another you know, example. Basically, anywhere where a prophet says, thus says the Lord, everything that follows after is exactly what the Lord told him to say. Um, so we do see those instances uh, quite often. And even Jesus Christ, uh, when he came, he said uh, that, that he says nothing out of his own will, but everything from from God the Father. So, um, so there are instances in Scripture where we know we're hearing directly what God wants us to hear, um, and and yet when you read through the books, you see very individual personalities coming through. You know, when you read yeah. the writings of John, it, they read very differently than the writings of Paul. Um, so their experiences, their um, their personalities, their you know their use uh, of language. Um, when James talks about justification, he means it very differently than where what, what Paul means when he talks about justification. So. The sovereignty of God, which is to say that God is in total control, is that he provides his word to us, but it is not um, absent of um, of the role that man has in his experiences and and um, and, and his, his vocabulary and all those kinds of things. And yet we can still affirm that what we have is the perfect word of God. Yeah, and that's a good point. If you think about the dictation theory, if that were true, and again, I think this is one of the easiest ones to discount. If that were true, then all of the Bible would have the same tone, the same character, the same style. Right. And clearly that that's not the case. Um, so uh, another theory is the natural theory of inspiration. Now, this one is very interesting because I do think that there are quite a lot of people who believe this theory. Uh, they couldn't call it by name. They probably don't know, you know what it teaches. But um, when we talk about the natural theory of inspiration, what we're talking about is essentially... God had no direct impact on the biblical authors in terms of what they wrote. In other words, they were effectively enlightened people who came to this truth from within themselves. 
which is yeah. sounds like very paganistic, mystic, uh, Gnostic, you know, postmodernistic kinds of view, and it really is. Um, and so, and so, we actually see this playing out. I think today a lot in how people approach the Bible. In fact, it really is almost what we now what we call now the new hermeneutic, where the authority of Scripture comes not from the Scripture itself but how the person interprets what's being preached. So the authority comes from within the person. And this is the same kind of idea. So it's not that God um, gave the words directly or inspired the authors directly, but they were able to find the truth from within themselves. Almost sort of sounds like your truth, my truth, but then just apply that, make it a little more spiritual in the biblical setting. So that's, the natural theory of inspiration. Uh, yeah, there, the I, I sounds, think that appeals to our world today a lot. Oh yeah, yeah. I, it, uh, and this sounds a little bit like um, I want to say Karl Barth when he says um, it, it's um, it, it becomes true to you when when you believe it, rather than emphasizing the objective yeah. nature um, of that truth. And uh, and yeah, it is very much the my truth, your truth. Um, how how does this speak to you versus how does this speak to him or how does this um, speak to her? Uh, and it's um, it puts a lot of emphasis upon the individual, and I think it plays out today when we talk about um, the um, ethnic kind of hermeneutics, the standpoint hermeneutics, where people yeah. start to talk about, hey, you need to interpret this through the lens of various ethnic cultures. I, I think it's the same kind of idea. And the, the problem with that is that while it may make man feel good about himself, um, there is no clear standard that you can point to. There is no arbiter. So, I mean, for instance, if you were to take kind of the standpoint hermeneutics um, through ethnicities, um, that you have to have different groups of people that all interpret the text um, together and to, in order to come to a richer and fuller understanding of what the text really says. The, the problem is that you're not going to get people, even within a single ethnic group, that all see it the same way. And if you're then when you get that problem, who's going to be the arbiter? Who's going to decide, okay, what is it? That, for instance, Asian people really believe. What is it that, you know, black people believe, which is not even an ethnicity. Now we're getting into skin color. What is it that white people believe? And and so it's it's foolish because, for one, you never know if you've consulted every single group that's out there. How do you know when you're finished? And then second, when you have all these deferring viewpoints, um, how do you how do you bring them together? How do you arbitrate? especially when there are contradictions uh, between them? Or do you just accept the contradictions and say, well, that's his truth and that's her truth and, and that's their truth and and our truth, which in that case, you no longer have truth, right? And <clears throat> this is, uh, we have to remember what 2 Corinthians, um, I think it's a chapter, I want to say chapter 11, where Paul says, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, and right? Mm -hmm. And his servants disguise them, themselves as servants of righteousness, so we have to remember that this is the M.O. for Satan. Right? From the very beginning, going back to the Garden of Eden, what was it that he said to Eve, uh, did God really say? And he ended yeah. up uh, disputing um, what Eve provided and said, you will surely not die. And from that moment, uh, we see that Satan called God a liar. And that's what he has been doing throughout time, trying to convince um, people who are following God that God is not telling the truth when, in fact, it's he who is uh, deceiving. He was the original gaslighter, um, the original projection artist. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's an interesting point when we think about Satan coming and disguising himself as, as light. I think sometimes in the, the more doctrinally solid camps, 
we can sort of start feeling like, okay, well, since we're, we're sound in doctrine, we've got good doctrine, we won't be deceived. But I, I think we forget he comes looking like light. Yeah, right. That's right. And and so he, he, we're no less susceptible, I, I think. And so we have to be very cautious and aware um, when we get into these things. Uh, so and yeah, so the natural theory is, is, I mean, most importantly, it rejects divine authorship. Right. Effectively, it mm -hmm. makes the human the author. And the human's interpretation or the human's thought. Well, for the biblical writers, it it was whatever truth they could come up with from within themselves. Um, and then that is how God worked in them. So we would still, if you believe that, you would still say the Bible is the Bible. But in reality, if you take that view, uh, it, it eliminates divine authorship. The the other the last big one, I mean, there are several of these out there, um, is the conceptual theory. Now I think this one is particularly dangerous in, in our time. I, I think yeah. the one we, we just spoke about, the natural theory and the conceptual theory, is probably where the majority of Christians, professing Christians, fall into, um, though maybe not as much in our camps, but just in general. The conception theory is, you know, basically that God did not give the biblical authors, the words that they were to speak. He didn't inspire the words. Basically, what God did was he just gave them the big picture. That is what's inspired, the, the concept. And then they just sort of filled in all the blanks uh, on their own. And so just for example, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, God uh, impressed upon, inspired you to write a small epistle concerning false teachers. And then that's it. Everything else in the book of Jude is just Jude working out the details himself um, yeah. uh, of, of false teachers. And so nothing other than the concept of being warned against false teachers in Jude would be inspired. Everything else would just be Jude's natural human working out of that message. Now, this one is very interesting because it means that the details of scripture do not matter. They can be dismissed as human details. You're just looking for the narrative or the big picture. And that's what yeah. God cares about. You can eliminate sort of the didactic specific information in the text. And we see a lot of that today. Yeah, this is, um, this is probably more common as you said, than, than the other ideas. And th this is a very easy way to dismiss uh, very specific statements that are being made. Um, for instance, uh, you know, the, the argument uh, for uh, female pastors rages on constantly, and uh, people come up with all kinds of excuses to dismiss exactly what uh, what Paul said. And some of it is this kind of concept theory, or sometimes they'll argue that it's just culture um, or whatnot. But, but this is um, really God providing the concept, as you mentioned, and then man doing the best they can to just try to communicate it in their own way. Well, if you're in the courtroom, let's say, you know, if you just provide your own version of what someone says, well, it gets dismissed. Why? Because we call that hearsay. Um, now, if you have an actual recording of what he said or what that person said, then it's admissible because now you're hearing directly what was said. You're not simply just hearing something and then you know using your own words to describe it. It gets thrown out. And so if 
the word of God is truth. It wouldn't even stand up to the court's uh, court's definition, the secular court's definition of, of what is truth, because it's essentially hearsay. They're they're just writing what they think God wants them to say, but they're they're not really writing exactly what God wants them to say. So it allows man to be the judge over what is being written. It allows man to be the judge because these writers were really interpreting it for themselves. But if we have a more enlightened view of God than perhaps these writers did, then we can say, oh, well, yeah, God didn't really mean that. God didn't really mean this. <clears throat> and in some yeah. ways, when we think about the, the the Jesus movement, there was the historical Jesus movement. And that goes back to, I want to say the 1980s, I think even earlier than that where you had a group of scholars coming together and they're just going through the gospels and, and they have these color coded um, kind of uh, uh, sticks or, or, or markers or something like that. Whereas they go through each narrative, they would put down a different color stick, each person at this table or marker to indicate um, their confidence in the text, whether Jesus really said that or what's being described really did happen. And so what you had at the end of this was that they're going to say, okay, based upon the consensus of these scholars, these are the most reliable parts of the gospel that um, that you can deem as, as being true. And these are the parts that we don't believe in nearly as much, or we're certain that it didn't really happen. And there was a, there was a guy, I think his name was, um, uh, I want to say Michael Lycona, and he was down in Texas. Um, he, he argues for biblical inerrancy, but then when he gets to Matthew and he talks about, we, we see that narrative, how a bunch of people came out of the grave after Jesus Christ was crucified. They came out of the grave, went to Jerusalem. Um, he looks at that and says, oh, that's just, you know, that that's just a parable. That's just um, illustration. It didn't really happen. You know, well, based upon what? Because when you look at that passage, there's nothing in there that, that would tell you, okay, this part is just meant to be symbolic. And, and why would you... Why would you mar the, the greatest act in all of human history, which is the crucifixion of our Lord followed by the resurrection? Why would you mar it with some fictional tale that didn't really happen? Right. Yeah. So, so you get a lot of this. And, and so at the end of the day, when you when you take that kind of view, man ends up being the judge and not God. God's word ends up getting muddled. And, and it really doesn't stop, once again, standpoint hermeneutics, where you can just step in and say, well, this is what it really means, I believe. Um, you know, we can't really take what they say. And, and you can start to exegete um, into the text what happens. Now, let me just add one verse, and then I'll, I'll let you address this. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to one verse that I, I often go right to whenever this kind of conversation starts to come up. Um, I think of 2 Timothy 2.15. 2 Timothy 2.15 talks about how, how important it is, it is for us to accurately, to be diligent in accurately handling the text, okay, rightly dividing the truth, um, being a workman who need not be ashamed before God. And this whole idea of rightly dividing the truth or accurately handling the text, this means nothing if the word of God is not precise, mm -hmm. Okay, and, and the conception theory would throw away any idea of precision. You can't yeah. claim it to be uh, pr precision. You cannot c claim the accuracy and the precision that the text um, truly deserves. But that's what Paul says to Timothy. You need to be diligent to make sure that you're accurately handling the word of truth. Peter um, talked about Paul's writings and said that that um, the unstable um, the unstable twist and distort his writings to their own destruction. Right. And, and God, when he spoke to Joshua in Joshua chapter one, um, he, he said, be careful to do according to all that is written in the book so that you may have success and you may prosper wherever you go. So these kinds of commandments to be careful, to be diligent, to rightly handle the truth, to not be like the unstable and to twist and distort. 
This goes to show that there is a, a real precision to the scriptures that requires work on our part to accurately understand it. Yeah, absolutely. And then you get to, uh, you know, th- places where like what we call the Great Commission, Jesus says, and teach them yeah. all that I commanded you. Yeah. Not the big picture of what I commanded you, not the general mm-hmm. concept of what I commanded you, but all that I commanded you. And so, but but I th- but this one we see so much in our day to day because it it gives the the person freedom to basically ignore any of the details they don't like. So, um, you, you know what? Well, Paul was just addressing uh, the need for sound teachers. Uh, we don't really need to pay attention to whether he's actually saying a woman can't be a, an elder or not. That's not right. the point. The point mm-hmm. is this larger concept. And so though people wouldn't probably know these theories by names, and that's not really you know the important, but I think, but it's helpful for us to understand that they're out there because then you can start to see, okay, well, it really does matter what you believe about the Bible's inspiration, because what you believe about the Bible's inspiration affects your entire Christian walk. It affects yeah. how you approach the Bible, how you read the Bible, how you uh, view the Bible, um, e- even what you obey or how you obey Scripture. And of course, so now we come to the, the biblical understanding, right, which is the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. Um, well, why don't you just kind of tell us what what do we? Those are a lot of big words. Right? What yeah, do we mean yeah. when we say the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture? Well, I, I would think of Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. Right, all Scripture is God breathed, and it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, so the man of God may be equipped for every good work. Um, basically, all the words that we have are truly the word of God. Um, it does not mean that there is no influence in terms of man's experiences. On the contrary, I would say that God sovereignly uses the experiences and the personalities to get across his message. And actually, that makes the word of God a, a greater miracle, um, that you've got at least 40 different authors throughout all of Scripture spread across uh, time and geography and language and, and culture and background, especially between the Old and the New Testament. And guess what? They're all pointing to the same thing. So verbal plenary means that the words that we have in Scripture, um, and especially when we're talking about the original manuscripts, I mean, we should talk uh, touch up on that as well. But the original autographs, the original copies, what was written was the actual words of God through the experience and the vocabulary and the personalities um, of men. It wasn't concept. Um, it was exactly what God intended us to receive. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, you know, we think of plenary just very simply, we use that word, it just means absolute or unqualified, right? Yeah. And and so, yeah, that's it. When we say the the verbal plenary inspiration of scripture, just, just as you've described, we mean, but it goes beyond just the kind of simplistic thought of all the words. It, it's, it means, it's not just that. It means that it's the understanding that God superintended the life and the character of the authors to such a degree that everything they wrote is exactly what God wanted them to write. God in his sovereignty superintended the life of Paul with the character he had, with the style he had, with the language and education he had um, to the degree that everything Paul wrote is God's own word. And that's why it's important to understand inspiration, because then when we get to passages where Paul says, I, but not the Lord, 
right? Yeah. We mm-hmm. understand that even that was still superintended yes. by God. Mm-hmm. And so even though Paul in his humanity, because Paul was just like us, yeah. he was no different. Mm-hmm. He was man. He, there was no divine nature or character in Paul at all whatsoever. Um, but Paul being inspired by the Holy Spirit, even when he makes those comments, God sovereignly, because of God's sovereign work in Paul yeah. and how he inspired scripture, even that is actually God's own word. So when Paul says, I, but not the Lord, we need to understand that that is Paul and his humanity, not understanding to the fullest degree that what he's writing is from God, which should yeah. make sense when we don't elevate Paul above his human status. Right. Um, well, I, I would also say that uh, for the Apostle Paul, uh, just like all the prophets, just like all the apostles, just like all the authors of scripture, they're being moved by the Holy Spirit. But Paul provides a lot of teaching that he did hear directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. We yeah. know that following his salvation, he went away for many, many years before he actually began his ministry as an apostle. Um, and during that time, he was instructed directly by the Lord himself uh, from heaven. Uh, Jesus Christ obviously being ascended up into heaven, but but teaching Paul directly. Um, so there's much that Paul heard directly but even in his understanding and knowledge and his experience and the Holy Spirit moving within him, as as he was writing those letters, it was the Holy Spirit moving him um, to, to bring at that point new revelation to him and, and to be able to reveal those words as, as given to us. And that's why Peter, when he refers to Paul's writings, uh, you know, I, I love I love what Peter says because he says, you know what, Paul's writings are hard to understand, even yeah. for the great apostle Peter. All right. Peter says, look. They're hard to understand. And, you know, when it comes from Peter, the one who was the closest, the most outspoken, the one who started the church on the day of Pentecost, for him to acknowledge Paul rather than turn it into um, kind of a rivalry or uh, I'm better than him or or he's worse than me or whatever it may be. He he said, look, his writings, they're they're hard to understand, but, but that's the wisdom that was given to him. And it's the ignorant and unstable who twist and distort them um, to their own destruction. Um, so we we just we have to recognize um, that that God how God uses people um, and that uh, when Paul uses those kinds of words, it's still true what Paul would ultimately say that yeah. all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it was affirmed his writings were affirmed by by Peter and and we find that his writings you know as I've been teaching through the Gospel of John, it's amazing how much of the Gospel of John shows up in Paul's writings. Well, why is yeah. that? Well, because Paul was instructed the same way. Right, so you see the same character of of Jesus Christ, the same teachings showing up and, and influencing him, just as it did um, as he was teaching the disciples, as we read through any of the Gospels. But in my case, the Gospel of John. Yeah, absolutely, and and you see that kind of throughout the New Testament, where the apostles often, either directly or indirectly, refer to writings of other apostles um, and put them on the same level as Scripture, and we see that in various ways. Yeah, so. And and so when we get to Paul, if you misunderstand biblical inspiration, then you can start to get confused. And, and because there are a lot of genuine believers who get to those statements by Paul where he says, I, but not the Lord. No. And and it is confusing, right? It, if, if you don't have a solid grasp of, of how God inspired the authors, then you can get to that and you can say, well, okay, so does that mean that this part isn't from God or right. n- no, Paul was still human. Um, but w- we understand God sovereignly used them. And, you know, and here's the reality. If God is sovereign, 
then we can't suggest, believe, or otherwise think that there is something either left out of the Bible that God wanted to be there or something in but in the Bible that God right. didn't want to be there. And, and so whether the human author always recognizes God's sovereign hand in what they're writing is, is irrelevant in, in mm-hmm. that way. Right. And generally, they recognize that, but then there are those few comments. And so when we understand that every... You know, everything the apostles wrote, everything the authors of the Bible wrote, um, because we don't know who all the authors are for all the books necessarily. They think of Hebrews. There's we won't get into that debate today. But um, but but the point is understanding how God sovereignly worked in their personality, their character, even down to the 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 verbal plenary inspiration um, even acknowledges that the very grammar and style written was God ordained. Like, was God inspired? If God didn't want Paul writing almost half of the New Testament, he was one book short of half of the New Testament, then Paul wouldn't have written it. He would have have chosen someone different. Um, And so if we get this right, I I think it sets us up to when when we approach the Bible, now we have an understanding of, okay, this, this is the word of God. And, and I think we can get off track sometimes when we talk about the original manuscripts. It, yes, um, technically we're speaking of the original writings, but folks, listen, if you don't believe your Bible it accurately reflects the original writings, then why are you a Christian? And why are you yeah. following what we have? Right? It, God was sovereign enough to make sure that every jot and tittle, every piece of grammar, every author wrote what he wanted to write. We, and we have all these thousands and thousands of manuscripts. You can, you can rest assured that the formal equivalency translations we have today are what the scripture says. And, and you have to have that. You have to take that approach. You have to have that view. Um, God is not only sovereign sometimes, and he's not only sovereign in the original writing of the text. He's sovereign in making sure that his people have his word um, for for time. And so we can have confidence that the, the Bible is what God wants it to be. So yeah. when we believe yeah. in the inspiration, we approach the Bible that way, and it should mean we approach it more carefully. It should right. mean we approach it more prayerfully, and it should mean that we're very intentional in being obedient to what it says because we understand, okay, this isn't just Paul's opinion here. God actually wanted this here in the text. No. Yeah. And um, God, uh, through Isaiah, said the, you know, the, the, the flower, the flower fades, the grass uh, the, or withers, um, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Right. And uh, he, he is sovereign to protect his word. And when I pointed out the original autographs, um, you're right. When we if you just study how we have the text that we have today, um, we, we have thousands and thousands of manuscripts and there is a science that goes into um, determining which one of those manuscripts are, are are the more accurate ones. And if you step through it, they make total sense. Um, yeah. And and the areas where there are discrepancies, we know exactly where those areas are. Often your Bibles will tell you um, sections that are not there in the earlier manuscripts. But um, even though uh, the, the existence of certain sections of Scripture that may not be there in the more reliable manuscripts, that, that has a way of uh, maybe jarring someone a little bit the first time they come across that. 
Um, but rest assured that there is nothing in those quote unquote extra sections that contradict anything else in scripture. Um, we know exactly where those areas are. And we can rest assured that through all the translations um, that have been made, the, the faithful translations that are made, you could use NASB, you can use LSB, you can use Holman Christian, ESV, you can use a number of translations and you'll still get very clearly the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, translations over time change, you know, we have the new King James, uh, the King James really from the 1600s now to some of the more modern translations. And people think that that a lot of these translations were, uh, you know, it was translated into this and then from there it was translated into this. No, we, we translate from the earliest and most reliable manuscripts uh, that we have into the language um, of today. And these are some of the finest uh, uh, scholars, uh, language scholars who understand the biblical world, the culture, who come together and, and put together these translations. There's different philosophies of translation, thought for thought versus word for word, uh, dynamic versus more literal. Um, and I often recommend for people um, who are doing serious study of the Bible but don't know the original languages, get a few different translations, you know, and you can you can kind of compare verses together. But even as I preach, and, and at times I'll go ahead and refer to the original languages, the my reference to the original language um, never contradicts what they see there in the English. It might help to crystallize it or to clarify it, but it doesn't contradict what's there. And so I would agree the English translations that you have, you know, especially if it's written in a form of English that you understand, you know, because sometimes we get people that are forced to read the New King James when, when they don't understand that 1600s kind of form of English. You know, get yeah. one that uh, you're able to read, read it carefully, read it slowly, uh, maybe have a second translation with you. Um, pray, meditate, exercise good Bible hermeneutics, and uh, you're going to come up with very solid um, theology that is directly from the Bible. And the proof of that is, for instance, you and I, you and I don't have the same background. We didn't go to the same schools. We came from different different places. Uh, we, we didn't know each other apart from social media until, you know, a couple of years ago, um, two or three years ago. Um, and yet we share very much the same theology. And when I go overseas to China or I go to Ukraine, Czech Republic, I meet people that I've never met before. They're reading the scriptures in their own language. And yet it's amazing. We have the same theology, right? And why is that? Because because God protects his word. He preserves his word and makes, and, and plus with the Holy Spirit, he sees to it that we're able to receive and understand uh, what is written. Yeah, absolutely. And and so the inspiration of scripture is vital that we understand how it is because again, it determine what you believe about inspiration determines whether or not you pick and choose what parts are just from man and what parts are just from God um in, in scripture. And it, you know, you get to you reference 2 Timothy 3:16 earlier, all scripture is inspired by God. And it's interesting because that Greek word for all there means all. Yeah, it's all. Yep. It's really simple. Um, if there was one place in Scripture that that wasn't true for, this passage would be a lie. And if yeah. there was one lie in the Bible, then the whole thing falls apart. Because right. effectively, you have to become the arbiter of ultimate truth, deciding which parts are true and which parts aren't, which would make yeah. you greater than God. Yeah. Um, and, and so it, oftentimes, we just think through the implications of what we believe. Right. We yep. can eliminate some of this erroneous stuff. So if you hear guys who are, you know, only concerned with the Bible's narrative, hopefully now you kind of have an understanding of what they must 
understand the inspiration of scripture to be. Not that they could pinpoint the name of the theory, but you at least know where they're coming from. And maybe yeah. we have gotten sucked into some of this ourselves, right? Um, there are narratives in scripture where the narrative is is the the primary thesis, the point. But that's not to say that the details don't matter. Right. Um, you know, once we understand the the verbal plenary inspiration of scripture, you know, the next step is to then learn how to just read the grammar, right? There are similes, there are metaphors, there there is hyperbolic language, there's, you know, literal uh, phrases, there's, um, you know, there's, there's, for, there's picture uh, in scripture, there's parables, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Which are not true stories. They're, they're stories right. that... <clears throat> teach us something. And, and so you just have to learn how to read well um, yeah, yeah. when we get to those things. But but all of that, uh, all of those things are in scripture because God wanted them to be there. It's all inspired. Every page, every word, every piece of grammar from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation. And we have to view it that way. And I think once we come to that firm conviction Right, it compels us to approach the Bible as a sacred text, right? Something that's yeah. higher than us, right. above us, something that commands us, um, that brings life into us when we uh, read it rightly and obey it properly. It just changes how we start to view that book we have in our hand, right? Amen. And let me just add, um, we haven't talked about this verse, and it's it's worth mentioning. Second uh, Peter chapter one verses twenty and twenty one. Know this first of all that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. I mean that right there blows a lot of these false uh, theories out of the water. Man is not involved in the interpretation as he's writing down Scripture, which would destroy the conceptual theory and and kind of the enlightened theory. Verse twenty one for uh, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. So that that destroys the kind of uh, the natural theory of all this, right? But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And even in saying that men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God, even the Jews understood this because at the end of Matthew chapter 22, um, Jesus quotes Psalm 110. And he asked the question, okay, the Messiah, the, the Christ, whose son is he supposed to be? And they say, well, he's the son of David. And Jesus says, okay, then why did David, by the Holy Spirit, write these words? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And what was interesting is that Jesus cited Psalm 10 as being written by David, but writing through the Holy Spirit. And, and if you read Psalm 110, the Holy Spirit's not mentioned there. But the Jews understood that the Holy Spirit was involved in the creation of Scripture. And so they didn't dispute it. And when you look at these disputes between Jesus Christ and the and the Jews, never once did the Jews come back and say, you know what, Jesus, those weren't really, truly the words of God. Those were concepts. But, you know, David didn't quite get that right. And, and this is what really God meant. You never see that once because that they understood that the word of God was the word of God. And so what we're creating now are, are really things that are just foreign to the text, even foreign to the original objectors. Uh, to Jesus Christ. They didn't even refer to this kind of argumentation because they knew it to be false. Um, So they they understood that the word of God was the word of God. It was a matter of whether they understood it or not. Jesus would repeat over and over again, have you not read, have you not read, have you not read? Mm -hmm. He says to Satan, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word, okay, every word, not every thought, 
You know, not every concept, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So when you look at what these scriptures and how they testify to themselves, you'll see how it testifies to its own um, authentic nature that it's truly breathed out by God and the importance of understanding and knowing and feasting on every single word. Um, and when you see that, none of these theories can can, can just, get, they just, they just don't hold up. So just the, the simpler explanation is the better one. These are truly the words of God. Yeah. Through men, through men that uh, that God sovereignly um, was sovereignly orchestrating their lives and their experiences, and and use that to bring about exactly what He wanted us to hear. Amen. So the Bible is a living book because it's fully inspired by God, and it has power because it's God's word. And so when we obey it, um, right, and that's why we 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 kind of jokingly say sometimes if you want to hear. God, read your Bible. If you want to hear him audibly, read yeah. it out loud. But it's yeah. true. So mm -hmm. when we twist scripture, when we misunderstand scripture, um, e even e even when we do so in a well-meaning way, we just get it wrong. We yeah. we are getting wrong God's own word. And so it should create in us, create in us a, a sense of awe and respect and reverence when we approach our Bibles. Look, the book itself doesn't matter, right? I mean, the the leather, the the paper, the ink, right? That's what we're talking about. But the words, you know, in the Bible are God's words to God's people. And um, I, I've I've taken to saying often lately that just the Bible itself is God's proof that He loves us. God was Amen. not content to mm -hmm. leave us without instruction, and not just a general concept, but specific life instruction how to be saved, how to love him, how he loves us, how we're to love one another. And so the Bible really is an incredible, an incredible book written by God, given to us. So we hope that that has been helpful to you guys, uh, that you'll view the inspiration and maybe understand inspiration a little bit better. And maybe that'll help bring in line some of the other, uh, the other aspects of scripture, the authority, the sufficiency of scripture. And, um, so thank you guys for joining us. And until next time, let the truth be known. The Truth Be Known podcast is a theologically driven, gospel-centered program serving the body of Christ by bringing biblical truth to bear on issues facing the church today. Subscribe to the Truth Be Known podcast by using the podcast app on your Apple or Android device or listen online at strivingforeternity.org in the podcast section.